If you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 18. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of John, and today we're going to be looking at John 18, verses 37 through 40. Hear now the word of our Lord, John 18, starting in verse 37. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we unite in this moment to explore the teachings of your word, where we approach your presence with thankfulness and expectation. Lord, please open our hearts and minds to absorb wisdom and insight from your word. Lord, may you bless us with discernment, understanding, and a readiness to live out these truths in our daily lives. Lord, guide us and transform us by your word and spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, just to remind you where we are at here in the story of Jesus, we are at his final hours right before he is murdered. After having spent time alone with his disciples, we learn that Jesus crossed the book Kidron to go to a garden. And this garden was at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and it was called Gethsemane. And as we noted earlier, John seems to focus a little more on the victorious nature of Christ in this moment. And so we don't read some of the details of our Lord's agony here in the garden like we read in the other Gospels. In Matthew, for example, he says that when Jesus arrived at the garden, he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then Luke tells us that during this same time, there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And again, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. 
Never before had Jesus' disciples heard such language from their teacher, nor had they witnessed him in such deep anguish. And here we see that Jesus was experiencing a rare condition known today as hematidrosis, or blood sweat, where blood seeps from the skin due to extreme distress. And so clearly our Lord was undergoing intense suffering in this garden. In fact, what's interesting is the very name of the garden, Gethsemane, adds to the intensity of the scene. This was in an olive grove, and the name Gethsemane specifically is derived from two words that when put together means oil press. An oil press involves a large millstone that is rolled or pressed over olives in order to squeeze the oil out and to collect the oil. And so here is Jesus in the garden of oil press with sorrow so overwhelming that it felt as though he was being pressed, being squeezed and crushed beneath the weight of a massive olive press. And Jesus could have walked away, but he knew why he was there and why he came. In fact, Jesus intentionally went to this garden, for it was a place that Jesus met often with his disciples so that Judas would know where to find him. And when Judas, the band of soldiers, and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees arrived with lanterns, torches, and weapons, notice that Jesus does not run away, does not flee. In fact, he steps forward and asks, Whom do you seek? And when they answered Jesus of Nazareth, he said to them, I am he. You see, Jesus, as a good shepherd, chose this path of laying down his life for his sheep. It was all planned, it was all decreed by God, and now the hour was at hand. Well, after being questioned by Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin, Jesus was then taken to Pilate, the Roman governor. And after the Jews, and after asking the Jews why they would not just take Jesus for themselves and judge them according to their law, the Jews said it is not lawful for us to put anyone to, de to death. And this thus indicates their motive. They simply wanted Jesus dead. We are reminded of what John wrote in the beginning of this gospel, where he said that he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This rejection and handing over Handing him over to Pilate also served to fulfill the word of Jesus, who had foretold that he would be lifted up in death and thus not die by stoning on the part of the Jews. This reminds us of John 3, 14 and 15, where we read, And as Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, all of this indicating that this was all planned and decreed by God. None of this is an accident. Calvary writes, if we wish to read with advantage the history of Christ's death, the chief point is, is to consider the eternal purpose of God. The Son of God is placed before the tribunal of a mortal man. If we suppose that this was done by the caprice of men, and do not raise our eyes to God, our faith must necessarily be confounded and put to shame. 
But when we perceive that by the condemnation of Christ, our condemnation before God is blotted out because it pleased the Heavenly Father to take this method of reconciling mankind to himself, raised on high by this single consideration, we boldly and without shame glory even in Christ's ignominy. Let us therefore learn in each part of this narrative to turn our eyes to God as the author of our redemption, unquote. And then that leads us, at least here in John's narrative, to the question then posed by Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? And there we read, Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And then Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And so this brings, this brings us to my first point in today's sermon, which overlaps with what we expanded upon last Lord's Day, and that is Jesus did in fact identify as a king. He spoke of his kingdom. He made reference to his servants. But of course, his kingship and his kingdom was and is not to be defined in a way that typical earthly kingdoms, with all their expectations of power and dominance and the means by which they obtain these things, are defined. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world and not from this world. Its source is not of or from the wicked system of men. And it does not operate by means according to the wicked ways of the world. Furthermore, its purpose and goal is not that of the wicked. And if you recall, this is where we camped out for a little bit last Lord's Day. We dove into some of the details concerning Christ's kingdom, looking at the language of the Westminster Standards concerning Christ's kingdom of power, kingdom of grace, and kingdom of glory. Now, I'm not going to go back into those details, but suffice it to say that we presented what may, might be called a two-kingdom theology. However, and this is important, it is a confessional two-kingdom theology, not to be confused with the more radical two-kingdom theology, oftentimes it's shortened and called R2K, that we see coming out of Westminster Seminary in California, for example. Christ rules over his church, kingdom of grace, and Christ also rules over all the nations, kingdom of power. And because he rules over the nations, there is an expectation and duty on the part of civil magistrates to, quote, take order, this is from our confession, that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed. Sadly, many have taken Jesus' words here in John 18 about the kingdom being not of the world and from the world to suggest that the, neither the Bible nor the law of God has any relevance for any governing authorities outside of the church. And friends, that is neither biblical nor confessional. And so the first point of today's sermon, which overlaps with the last uh, sermon, is that Jesus is in fact king. We've got to emphasize this. There are so many people 
and I'm thinking mainly of dispensationalists, who argue that when Jesus came and presented himself as king, or came, the Jews wanted to embrace him as king, and because he didn't accept their definition of king and kingdom, he therefore did not come as the king, and he won't be a king until the millennial thousand-year period in the future. Beloved, that is false. Jesus is king now. He is king in a very much unexpected way, not the way they anticipated or thought, the Jews, but he is king nonetheless. And since that was covered last week, we'll now move on to the second point for today, and that is the king's relationship to truth. For this, we read verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I believe it's very important that we see in this text that in all of this talk about his kingship and his kingdom, the central thing here that is tied to that kingdom is truth. And since the kingdom is necessarily tied to truth, then I think a great follow-up question is, what is truth? Funny enough, this is exactly the question Pilate raised as well, but I don't believe he was asking sincerely, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But let's consider this question, what is truth? Well, truth generally is described as that which aligns with facts or reality. In essence, truth is synonymous with reality, representing how things truly exist. From a theological standpoint, truth is that which harmonizes with the mind character, glory, and essence of God. Truth is God revealing himself. Truth is what God declares it to be. And every truth must be understood in relationship to God, whose very essence embodies truth. The Bible tells us that God the Father is the God of truth. Isaiah 65, 16, So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. He who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. We were told in John chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then we learned in John 14, 17, that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. There it says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. For you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Paul in 2 Timothy 2.15 calls Scripture the truth. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Beloved, without truth, no one can obtain salvation. And so given this, what are the traits of truth? What are its characteristics? What are its unique qualities? Well, first, understand that truth is of divine origin. 
fact, Jesus tells us right here in this text that everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Truth, while in this world, is not of it or from it. It is not shaped by popular opinions. It's not determined through surveys or votes. It's not bound by human traditions. Truth can only be apprehended through divine revelation. And God is the exclusive source and singular author of truth. Sin is defined by God's declaration. Judgment is based on God's pronouncement. Salvation is precisely what God defines it to be. Truth is not the pronouncements of humans. It's, it's not the pronouncement of humans that matter, but it's solely the declaration of God. The principle in Romans 3, 4 still stands. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Secondly, truth is absolute. Malachi 3.6, we read, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And in James 1.17, we read that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Beloved, God is essential for the existence of absolutes. And without absolutes, objective and universal truth cease to exist. Truth becomes subjective, relative, and dependent on personal or cultural preferences. However, all truth is absolute because it originates from God, who is absolute truth. And anything con contradictory to the truth is considered false. Sorry, woke folks, but we do live in a binary world. Truth is selective. It excludes what is not true. It does not coexist with nor tolerate any form of error. And universal truth is consistent across all circumstances. It is all-encompassing, thorough, and complete. And the absoluteness of truth is rooted in its derivation from one God, and it is entirely dependent on Him. One of the third characteristics of truth is that it's unified. In other words, truth constitutes a singular entity. It's not fragmented or comprised of unrelated ideas or disconnected data. In fact, the Bible consistently employs the definite article when referring to the truth, emphasizing that it is not a collection of partial truths from various sources. Truth cannot be reduced to an assortment of ideologies gathered from different origins or be discovered through the study of competing philosophies or comparative religion. You know, last week I was on social media and a video came across my feed of, it was uh, Rain Wilson, the guy who played uh, Dwight Schrute in The Office, if you've watched that show. And he was saying something about how unfortunate it was that people have given up on spirituality because of bad religious practices or something like that. And quite a few people were applauding him, even some professing Christians. Well, I thought that what he was said was a little vague and meaningless. So that in turn led me to 
research a little bit and find out what his background was and, and what religion he was part of. Turns out he is of the Baha'i faith. And if you know anything about them, they believe that God has manifested himself through the various major religions. Well, that certainly explained for me why what he said in the video was meaningless, because that is exactly what you get with the Baha'i faith. How can you know the truth from uniting all of the major religions when all of them contradict one another on major essential points? You can't. And so what you end up with is this vague, ambiguous, meaningless gibberish about being spiritual, whatever that means. Beloved, instead, we should understand that truth is unified and coherent because all truth finds its essence, not in the combining of all religions, but in the singular reality of the one true God. As a unified body, truth maintains eternal consistency. It never contradicts itself. It consistently communicates with a single voice and remains in perfect agreement with itself. In every aspect of truth, harmoniously aligns with the entirety of its content. Jesus said in John 10, 35, that scripture cannot be broken. And in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus, as the source of truth, implies the unity of truth. And then fourth, truth is objective. In Colossians 2, 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And in Psalm 119, 142, we read, Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Beloved, truth is not influenced by personal feelings or determined by individual intuition. Instead, it is propositional and revealed. Truth is expressed through precisely defined words with rational meanings and communicated in clear terms to convey genuine understanding. In the realm of truth, words possess specific meanings, making it distinct, definitive, and conclusive. Truth is not abstract or vague or unclear. It is accurately expressed through the fixed meanings of words and can be observed, discussed, studied, analyzed, believed, proclaimed, and defended. And given its objectivity, truth remains impartial, unbiased, unprejudiced, and nonpartisan. It addresses all people universally, speaking consistently regardless of location or your individual circumstances. It maintains a singular and unwavering stance. It never adopts a double-sided approach or tailors its message to a particular audience. It communicates to all individuals in the same manner without catering to popular opinions or delivering conflicting messages to different people. And then fifth, truth is unchanging. Just as God remains unchanging, so does his truth. 
While society may attempt to redefine morality and culture might seek to reclassify its values, Jesus identified himself as the embodiment of truth, distinct from the customs of the day. Truth, as articulated in the psalmist's words, is eternally settled in heaven. In Psalm 119.89, we read, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Beloved, societies may evolve, kingdoms may rise and fall, but the truth remains unwavering. It is immutable, it's permanent, it's established, it's inflexible, it's constant, it's lasting, enduring, timeless, and unchanging. And as a result, it always remains relevant. It is always addressing present issues with profound insight. Truth never becomes outdated, obsolete, or expired. It remains unyielding and always true. And then sixth and last, last, truth is authoritative. It communicates with unwavering certainty, speaking with the supreme authority of God himself. Truth consistently issues commands and does not present mere suggestions or options. It is not designed to be merely interesting or to arouse your curiosity. Instead, it speaks with sovereign power, overpowering all other voices. Commanding, arresting, and directional truth has the authority to give orders. And so as a result, truth must be actively listened to. It demands your undivided attention. And you cannot ignore or dismiss dismiss its message. It binds our lives and it necessitates a response. And moreover, truth possesses supernatural power. As Jesus said in John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Embraced through faith, truth liberates our souls from the tyranny of sin. In his prayer, Jesus affirmed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. Truth has the purifying ability to penetrate the deepest recesses of our hearts, cutting to the core and affecting change from within. In Hebrews 4, 12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Beloved, in all matters, truth has the ultimate authority. It guides us in our worship and our conduct, instructing us to follow Christ. And it serves as the final judge on every subject and in all of life. It measures all people, weighs every life in its balances, and marks every destiny. And thus truth has the final say in all things and all of life for all people.
and truth, as we see here in John 18, is necessarily tied to the king and to the kingdom. And then this leads me to my third and last main point. I want you now to consider the responses of the world to truth. It's displayed in Pilate and then in the Jews. The Gospels don't tell us much about Pontius Pilate. However, we have some extra biblical sources, such as uh, the Jewish historian Josephus and Philo of Alexandria, who give us some additional insights into Pilate's life. He was appointed as the governor of Judea in AD 26 by the emperor Tiberius, and he served in that role until AD 37, overseeing a region known for its resistance to, to Roman rule. Judea was considered an undesirable assignment due to the constant non-compliant nature of the Jews. And Pilate displayed hostility toward the Jews early in his rule by bringing Roman standards with the emperor's image into Jerusalem, causing outrage. The Jews protested by staging a sit-down strike. You thought what you saw, see from Antifa is new, it's not new. Jews protested a sit-down strike at Pilate's house lasting five days and threatened with execution. They eventually compelled Pilate to remove the standards. But his clashes with the Jewish people continued. He introduced votive shields into the holy place, which caused further protest. And the emperor intervened, commanding Pilate to respect Jewish religious freedom and to remove the shields. And then there was Pilate's attempt to use funds from the temple for an aqueduct construction that also led to protest with his soldiers clubbing people to death. And then he also issued copper coins bearing pagan images, which further angered the Jews. And I'm telling you all this because understanding this background sheds light on his weak and pliable nature explains why he succumbed to the pressure of the crowd demanding Jesus' death. Pilate, fearing the potential repercussions from Rome if he resisted the people's demands, may have believed he may have believed that complying was necessary to safeguard his career. And this is why I said to you earlier, I don't think he was sincere when he asked Jesus what is truth. It was more like, yeah, okay, what is truth? And so one exhortation I give to you today is, don't be like Pilate. <coughs> Some of you may identify as agnostic, that is without knowledge, and you're happy to stay there. You might refrain from taking a definitive stance on Jesus, not necessarily because you think Jesus was false, but you simply claim ignorance. You don't want to take a stand. You can't decide yes or no. And so your judgment on this matter remains in a state of suspension. Well, let me ask you this. When it comes to other things that affect you greatly, or you believe affects you greatly, do you withhold judgment and claim ignorance then? It's funny how you never encounter someone who struggles to believe in moral absolutes when they are physically harmed, for example, like being punched in the face. Nor do you see this, and then think of Enro when somebody walks into your apartment complex and steals your ladder or saws your catalytic converter off your truck. In such situations, 
it's interesting how we have an immediate conviction that the aggressor is undeniably guilty. And yet, if a judge were to say not guilty because truth is relative, and for him it was justifiable to punch you or to steal your ladder or your catalytic converter, you would likely laugh and scoff at such an unjust judge and protest. You see, we tend to hold strong convictions when our life is at stake or when someone is messing with our stuff that we work hard to get. But understand, friend, there is no greater possible threat to you right now than where you stand with Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 12, <clears throat> after all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? And then when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. For how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Beloved, understand something. Your indecision to follow Christ is actually a decision. It's a decision to reject him. And understand that on the final day of judgment, you're not going to be allowed to claim ignorance any longer. And now I want you to know this, the Jews' response. Here in John 18, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews at his pilot and he told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Well, who exactly was this Barabbas? We learn in the other Gospels that Barabbas had been imprisoned on charges of sedition and possibly murder, with Matthew 27, 16 labeling him as a notorious prisoner. Mark 15, 7 indicates that Barabbas had participated in a rebellion against Roman authorities, leading to his condemnation under Roman rule, resulting in a death sentence. And now consider in stark contrast Jesus whom the Jewish leaders were adamant about having executed due to their envy. They brought Jesus before Pilate for trial, where even Pilate acknowledged Jesus' innocence. In fact, both Pilate and his wife referred to Jesus as a just man. In Matthew 27, we read, For he knew that his Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And yet, nevertheless, as we read during the Passover tradition, there was a customary practice allowing the Jews to select one prisoner for release. And when Pilate inquired of the Jewish leaders, asking, whom do you want me to set free for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate held the expectation that they would opt for Jesus 
And yet, surprisingly, the Jews chose Barabbas. And so in accordance with their decision, Pilate honored their choice, releasing Barabbas. And as a result, he ordered Jesus to undergo a beating and then be crucified. Here's another interesting tidbit regarding names. In Hebrew, the name Barabbas can be dissected into two components. Bar, meaning son of, and Abba, meaning father. So Barabbas' name literally means son of father, son of the father. It's also interesting that in some Greek manuscripts, in Matthew 27, 16 and 17, they refer to Barabbas, Barabbas as Jesus Barabbas. So in essence, Pilate presented the Jewish leaders with a choice between Jesus Barabbas, son of father, and Jesus the Messiah, son of God the Father. Per Matthew 121, we know that the name Jesus signifies Savior. And yet here is Jesus Barabbas, who attempted to act as a Savior of the Jews by engaging in a physical rebellion against Roman authorities. Consider in contrast our Lord Jesus Christ, the true Savior, who was about to undergo crucifixion and liberate his people from their greatest enemy, which is sin. Regarding Barabbas' character, he was a robber, murderer, and rebel, seeking to save the Jews through insurrection. He is exactly the type of worldly person that Jesus contrasted himself and his kingdom against. In character, Barabbas symbolized the devil. I thought it was funny. I was on a short conversation with Enro last night, and just out of the blue, he just brought up at this point, he didn't know I was going to bring it up in the sermon. But Barabbas symbolized the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. It's mentioned in John 8, 44. So notice, here are the Jews, the supposed people of God, siding with this devil over against God, the Savior. And should we be surprised? If you recall, back in John chapter 8, we read, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Do you not hear John 18 right here, 10 chapters back? Jesus, all the way back in chapter 18, foreshadowed everything we are now seeing with these God-hating Jews in Jesus' trial. And so here's my second exhortation to you. Don't be like these Jews. You know, if you think about it, Barabbas serves as a representative of all humanity, guilty of sin. 
Isaiah 64, 6 underscores that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Our salvation and true freedom can only be found in relying on Jesus to take away our sins. Barabbas recognized his need for salvation and freedom from the Romans, but he failed to understand his need to be delivered from sin. And so attempting self-salvation, he fell short. And so the question I pose to you today is whether you too are making the same mistake by endeavoring to save yourself from sin in your own strength, in your own way. Beloved, you are presented with a choice today, similar to the Jews' choice between Jesus Barabbas, son of the Father and false Messiah, or Jesus the true Messiah, son of God the Father. Will you seek freedom independently, or will you embrace and rely on the power of Christ? the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What is the truth of your reality? Is it what you think it ought to be? Or is it what God has revealed in his word and says it is? I urge you today to recognize the profound significance of Jesus' claim to bring the truth and to be the truth. It is a matter that extends beyond the temporal involving eternal life and eternal death. Your very existence hangs in the balance. And as Jesus emphasized in another passage, John 7, 17, if anyone's desires to do God's will, they will understand whether the teaching is from God. Beloved, Jesus did not come into the world to conceal the truth of God. His birth and his presence bear witness to the unwavering and absolute truth of God. And so understand the immense importance of this. Engage with the gospel. Read it earnestly, and you will discern the truth, experiencing the liberating power that comes with it. Let's pray.